Welcome back to another episode of Consciously Clueless. I'm your host, Carly, and I'll be your guide on this journey from consciousness to cluelessness and back around again. Today in the podcast, I talk to Claudia Lifton. Claudia works at the Institute for Humane Education. Previously, as the Denver Director of Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, she spent six years speaking to students, business leaders, and stakeholders about the environment, public health, social justice, and animal welfare impacts of factory farming. In Denver, she serves on Mayor Hancock's Sustainability Advisory Council and is a member of the Board of Directors for Good Life Refuge. This episode is packed with a lot of hard truths that might be hard to hear. Take your time. Here we go. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? By now, you all know that therapy is an important part of my own self-care. It has truly been a game changer in every aspect of my life, including achieving goals. BetterHelp is the largest online therapy platform worldwide. They are changing the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to a licensed therapist. BetterHelp makes professional therapy available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. You can start communicating within 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. And I have a special offer for Consciously Clueless listeners. Visit BetterHelp.com Carly and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. By using this code, you get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash C-A-R-L-Y. Take care of yourself today. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you again so much for taking time to chat with me. I'm really excited. Yes, I'm so excited too. So the podcast is called Consciously Clueless. I love that. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that came from this place of just realizing I was kind of on this path of being like, wow, I'm learning so much. I'm, I'm, you know, like kind of tapping into this consciousness and, Mm -hmm. and all of that. And then the next, you know, the next day you're like, oh, I'm clueless. I know nothing yeah. <laughs> um, and everything in between. So I love kind of talking about that. So I like asking guests first, yeah. um, where do you feel like right now in this moment, I'm going to put you on the spot on the spectrum from conscious to clueless. Like where, where are you at? Whatever that means for you. I think it depends on what we're talking about. I think mm-hmm. I have a lot to learn in a lot of areas, but I feel very confident in my awareness and consciousness, should I say, um, mm-hmm. when it comes to certain issues, especially environmental and, and animal issues. So um, just because I'm, I'm curious, I know I already put you on the spot, but um, what are some things like when you say, you know, there's some areas that you still have a lot to learn? Are there things that come to mind? I think all of us are always on a path to learn more about our spirituality, about who we Mm -hmm. are as individuals, about how we can help others and Mm -hmm. be more aware of the struggles of others so that we can be more supportive. I think that we all have a lot of learning and growing to do, especially during times like these. Yes, definitely. We have the time to do it, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I was, um, connected to you through Monica Mm -hmm. and I asked like, Hey, do you know of anyone that you think would be a good fit after I talked to her? She's, as you know, I'm sure amazing. Um, and she was like, you definitely need to talk to Claudia. So, um, you came highly recommended to be on the show. (laughs) Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you do? You run, is you run the rescue? No. So I'm on the board of good life animal refuge. Um, I worked for factory farming awareness coalition for six years as the Denver director. So mostly speaking to students and businesses uh, about the impacts of factory farming on the environment, on social justice issues, public health, animal welfare. Uh, Mm -hmm. I now work full-time for the Institute for human education Um, And then I'm also on the board of Good Life Animal Refuge, and I am on the Mayor's Sustainability Advisory Council, with which we just got a sustainability by default um, or greener by default policy passed. 
um, wow. through working with Better Food Foundation, who is promoting default veg in you know cities and uh, businesses and corporate cafeterias wherever they can, basically. So okay, that's so you thing. you just listed a bunch of things I have follow up questions on. So I'm going to sure. try and tease through that. Yeah. Totally. Um, let's start with I guess your connection to Monica and how I found you the, when you worked, you're in Colorado, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, (laughs) that's good to know. Um, when you worked for factory farming awareness coalition, Mm -hmm. um, what was that work like? Like, what did that look like for you? So for about six years, I pretty much spent all day, every day in high school or college classrooms. Um, and I would speak to, to corporations, to businesses, nonprofits, government mm-hmm. bodies, really whoever would have me. Uh, and the presentation would be tailored to whatever that group was interested in or whatever the teacher needed for their curriculum. So we had tons of different presentations tailored for different audiences. So science classes, we would often speak about the environmental impacts of animal agriculture for ethics classes. We would talk about uh, social justice issues within the animal ag industry for health classes. Obviously, we would talk about the health impacts of eating animals or for, you know, public health impacts of the spread of pandemics or antibiotic resistance yeah. bacteria from factory farms. So, you know, this, this issue of factory farming impacts really everything that exists on earth. Um, and our goal was to kind of meet people where they are and tap into their passions to drive them to action, to get them to, to realize the impact that this industry was having on the things that they cared about to mm-hmm. get them to take action and want to take action. I think that was one of the things I was most impressed with when not hearing this again. And, and when Monica described that work is just the ability to tailor those conversations mm-hmm. yeah. because it's one thing to say, I have this 30 minute presentation. Can I come and talk to your classroom? factory farming is bad here. Like don't support it. Right. Right. But to tailor it and have people, I think that's how people are going to hear the message. Right. Yeah. And you know, not everyone's major priority is animals. Some people's priority is workers' rights, social justice, right. You know, some people's priority is their own health or the health of their children or environmental issues. And we have this kind of unique and rare opportunity as a movement Unfortunately and fortunately, you know, because this industry impacts everything and everyone around us, we don't have to try to force people to care about the things that we care most about. We can really meet them where they are uh, Mm. and, and, you know, tailor the message about this issue to get the result that we want without making them feel as though we judge them for not making animals a priority or the environment a priority. If their priority is their own health, that's okay too. Yeah. The way you just said that was so beautiful. Like, because it touches every part of our society and world and community, it's, there's not necessarily a lot of convincing yeah. to do re- when you really break it down. Yeah. I like that approach being like, I actually don't need to convince you. I bet you're already on board. Yeah. Everyone cares about something. And again, unfortunately and fortunately, we are really uniquely positioned as a movement um, to to really be able to tap into every single issue that a person could possibly care about. You know, there's nothing that factory farming doesn't impact in a negative way. Um, So if you care about the economy, if you care about animals, if you care about the environment, if you care about wildlife or your health, public health, workers' rights, social justice, you know, really nothing isn't touched by this industry. So we, we do have an opportunity. And I think that's something that more, I hope more animal rights activists will kind of tap into as well is the ability to really meet people where they are instead of shaming them into submission or trying to shame them into submission. It really never works. Yeah. So, um, I think that brings up an interesting point and a problem within the movement in terms of being vegan or, um, animal, you know, animal rights, whatever it is, but really I think the vegan movement, there's a lot of shaming that goes into that, um, that I am not totally sure how to solve. I I don't Mm. think, you know, I can solve it or you can solve it, but it's a really big problem in terms of, um, getting people to listen. Yeah. And you know what? I get it. I was a shamey vegan for a really long time. And sometimes I still am. 
I mean, you just have to look at my Instagram and you can see how I really feel. (laughs) But, um, you know, when talking to people one-on-one, it it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's something to remind activists, including myself of, is that it it just doesn't work. So if we want to be the most impactful for animals, we have to do what works best. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that isn't the thing that often feels best, which is just yelling and screaming and shaking people and trying to force them to wake up. Um, You know, I understand that anger and, or I understand the anger and I understand the urgency, you know? Yes. Yes. I, I often sit at home and sometimes I'll get in a loop in my head that I can't get out of. And I'll say 300 animals, 300 animals, every second, every single second, you know, 24 million a day, just in this country. It's once you have those numbers circulating in your head, once you have the images of the slaughterhouses you've seen, once you know what's happening, it's really, really hard to not be angry and miserable and in pain all the time. And that's something that I struggle with too. But, you know, I think we have to look at what works best in getting other people on board. They don't want to be miserable. They don't want to be unhappy and deprived. So we have to present the vegan movement as something joyful and expanding and inclusive and fun. Right. Just general, it's just typical marketing, right? It's just marketing. I was just going to say it's just marketing, (laughs) but it's so true. And listeners have heard me say this. I'm sure they're tired. I've talked about this at nauseum, but I, my best friend growing up, we've been best friends since we were like eight years old. She has been vegan since we were 11 or 12, like way ahead of the curve. I'm in Northern, Northern, Northern Minnesota. So hunting and fishing is everything. And I just remember now that I think back her patience with me being, and still is being my best friend. Mm -hmm. All I did growing up was hunt and fish with my family. Yeah. And you know, and she, if I had questions, she would answer them. She would once in a while just be like, no, like, I don't, you know, like, let, I I don't really need to talk about that or whatever it is, but never did she make me feel bad. Never did she make me feel like she couldn't be my friend. And once I made that connection after I had been vegan for a while and I was terrorizing anybody in my life, trying to get them to listen (laughs) to me, I was like, oh shit. Yeah. If Michelle my friend can deal with me for 20 years and have patience. I think I need to figure this out a little bit more for myself. Yep. Definitely. But it's hard. Yeah, it is. And it still is every day. Yes. Yes. I think that's the thing too, is that it's not that you shouldn't be angry. It's like, what are you going to do with the anger though? Mm -hmm. How to channel it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's still something I'm working through <laughs> in general. Very much same. Yeah. I think people looking at my Instagram that don't know me in person are probably like, what the fuck is she talking about? She's the angriest <laughs> vegan I've ever seen. Um, but in my, you know, presentations and in my festival outreach and when I'm actually doing advocacy for work, um, I, I definitely am much more <laughs> patient than I probably come off as that's all right. It's your social media. Yeah. And I also think, you know, social media is a whole different animal. It's a whole different monster. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think that it's kind of effective that it just depends on finding the right tone. Um, But I do think that when you're talking to someone in person, there's so much more emotion involved. There's so much more personal relationship involved. I do think that on social media, it can sometimes be effective. You know, every, everyone on social media is always trying to be the biggest and the loudest and the most seen. Right. Um, And I think that sometimes it's important to tap into that as well and Mm -hmm. also make other vegans feel heard and seen. Yeah. I think that community is really important for people that are suffering in, in this knowing that we have. Yeah, absolutely. So something else you said that I want to hear more about, and I don't remember exactly what you said, so I'm going to paraphrase and please fill in the blanks. Something about a board that you're on. Yeah. And mayor something and you passed something. It sounds great. Tell us more. (laughs) So I was one of hundreds of applicants accepted to join the sustainability advisory council for 
Mayor Hancock in Denver. Okay. Um, and essentially the, the reason that I joined was to get food to be a part of the conversation because mm-hmm. you know, it's, a, it's an environmentally focused committee. It's a, you know, climate justice focused committee, but so often, as we all know, food is left out of the conversation, even though it's arguably the single most important part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So the reason I wanted to join and was really happy that I was accepted to join is because I wanted to be kind of that annoying fly in the, in the ear that just won't go away. That's just mm-hmm. constantly gently pushing the narrative, um, into, into the ether and hoping that eventually others will start to, to catch on and start to be a, an annoying fly as well. Um, so I was working for the past year with members of Better Food Foundation, Katie Contrell, the founder of FFAC. I'm sure okay. you know of yep. her and uh, Alana Braverman and uh, Laura as well at BFF on trying to get the Sustainability Advisory Com- Committee to uh, Sustainability Advisory Council to pass a default veg type policy. Okay. Essentially, I don't know if, do you know much about default veg or sustainable? I don't, I've never heard of that. The program default veg by Better Food Foundation, which is the organization is essentially based on the book nudge. And it's all about nudging human behavior and how small nudges on the default of human behavior can make massive change. So one of the examples that, you know, we use with the Denver mayor's committee is, uh, for example, organ donations in Germany, you have to opt in to be an organ donor and okay. only 1% of people are organ donors. So if you really no 12%, sorry. So, wow, that still is crazy. Yeah. I think 12%. of like everyone in our country. Well, every, actually, every life really, yeah, not really, really. Um, but yeah, so in Germany, you have to opt in to be an organ donor and only 12% okay. of people are. Okay. And in Denmark, which is really culturally similar to Germany, you're automatically an organ donor donor and yep. 99% of people are organ donors. So the power of the default is incredible. You know, it's incredibly Interesting. powerful. People, one, don't want to go against the grain yeah. um, and they don't want to just make another choice. They don't want to have to opt in or out of something. Too much. Typically, yeah, exactly. They go with the default. Yeah. So when applied to food and sustainability, it's actually incredibly powerful and not very invasive and doesn't make people feel like something is being taken away from them in the way that other, you know, campaigns like Meatless Monday have done in the past. So, you know, I would get so much pushback when talking about Green Mondays or Meatless Mondays in schools when it sounds relatively simple and easy, but the idea of like meatless, you know, I'm having something taken away from me. Um, when you just change the default, you still have the option to add meat to every meal. It's just that the default on the menu is plant-based. And so instead of feeling like something is taken away, it's really just swapping out what everyone else is doing. And it's been incredibly powerful. Um, and as someone that's been, you know, doing vegan outreach and has been part of this movement for a decade, I have really struggled seeing how little success the movement was having at getting these kind of institutional changes to occur. Yeah. And DV has just, it's just little light bulb. I, wow. I think it's just totally switched the, the narrative and has made it kind of mainstream or yeah. not, maybe not mainstream yet, but I think it has more of the possibility of being mainstream than other messaging that we've used previously. Wow. I'm fascinated by this. It's very cool. Yeah. It's really cool. I feel incredibly grateful to be working with the people at, at BFF on this. Um, so yeah, again, I don't work for BFF, but since I'm, I'm the one pushing for the policy out here. And you said it was passed. It was passed. It was passed. It was passed within the sustain, the sustainability advisory council. So got it within the mayor's sustainability advisory council. DV was passed. Our goal is to get it into the executive order for the whole city so that all government agencies will adopt default veg. Um, So what does that look like then? So if it's default veg, does that mean like, um, you know, and a city passes it, does that mean that like city buildings, it's default veg? Mm -hmm. What does that do for like school? Like, so where does that, where does it take place? What's the trickle down? Yeah, it would essentially mean that events put on by 
city agencies by government agencies would be plant-based by default. So okay. that could mean a lot of different things. You know, it could mean that if you have a menu ahead of time, instead of having the option to, to pick the chicken or the fish, and then a box to check if you want gluten-free or vegan, you have to check the box to pick the chicken or the fish instead. And the default is plant-based and it's just incredibly powerful. Or, you know, at a buffet style, you put the meat and dairy at the very end of the buffet and just mm-hmm. less of it, or, you know, it, it, yeah, there, it can be implemented in so many different ways. And I would definitely recommend talking to Katie more about this than me, because um, she is far more familiar with actual implementation. I've just been working on the policy side of this in Denver. Uh, But I find it to be extremely exciting and very effective. I can't wait to learn more about this. I am fascinated. It's very, very cool. Yeah. (laughs) This podcast is sponsored by TerraSeed. TerraSeed is on a mission to disrupt the vitamin industry, empower vegans, and reduce plastic waste in the world. They put everything plant-based people struggle to get in an all-inclusive, vegan, compostable package multivitamin that replenishes them and our planet every single day. Seriously, y'all, win, win, win. Even if you're not vegan, this vitamin will help you get those key nutrients that you need. I am so excited to share a discount code for your first purchase. Use code CARLY50 at checkout to get 50% off. Again, that's C-A-R-L-Y-5-0 for 50% off your first purchase at TerraSeed.com. Don't forget this code so they know I sent you. This podcast is supported by Who Gives a Crap. Who Gives a Crap is an eco-friendly toilet paper company that donates 50% of its profits to help ensure everyone has access to clean water and a toilet within our lifetime. Who Gives a Crap has donated almost 8 million U.S. dollars to nonprofit organizations who help provide clean water and toilets all over the world. Who Gives a Crap is delivered straight to your door with carbon neutral delivery. I love that it comes that way. I don't have to think about it. It's an automatic subscription, and I want you to try it. You can check out Who Gives a Crap and get $10 off your first order over $54 with the code CARLY10. That's C-A-R-L-Y-10, or check out the link in the show notes. That's really cool. So you said something in there that I want to come back to as well. Um, you said 10 years of doing activism within the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, let, I would love to go back and uh, talk about how you became vegan and then kind of like the, how'd you get into the movement then, I guess? Sure. Yeah. You know, I was always an animal lover. Um, I'll send you an essay I wrote for this book, Vegan Voices, where I talk about my my background as a little mini activist, my nickname, which my best friend at the time, Ellie, still my best friend, she, she named me bug girl and it stuck through all of elementary and middle school. And it was kind of mean back then, but now I love it as it's like a badge of honor. Um, but my nickname was bug girl throughout all of elementary school, because I would actually bring a little caterpillar, my pet caterpillar to school and a little carrier that I wore around my neck and take him on walks during recess and, sure. Um, sure. Why of not? Course, of course. And, uh, you know, whenever kids would kill ants and worms with magnifying glasses in the sun during recess, which the boys did a lot, I would run crying to the principal and would always be called a tattletale. Um, and I was kind of the neighborhood vet clinic for injured butterflies and tarantulas with missing legs and my mom was always getting calls from neighbors like, hey, we just found this mouse and its tail is ripped off. Can, does Claudia want it? Or this baby bird is alone. Does Claudia want this bird? Or we just found this butterfly in our in our pool stuck in the in the drain. Does Claudia want this bird? So, oh my gosh, I started my- not, to be, not to be annoying, but what's your astrological sign? I'm a Leo. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Actually, yep. not what I was expecting, but very cool. <laughs> so, okay, keep going. I um, started as an activist very young. Right. Uh, and it kind of continued. Um, in college, I worked for an animal shelter, a dog and cat shelter, and learned a lot about puppy mills and dog fighting and, 
became way more invested in advocacy and outreach, trying to prevent suffering before it happens. And uh, recognized pretty quickly that farmed animals are the most abused in terms of numbers and actual what actually happens, the most abused individuals that have ever existed on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I realized that I felt as though my time was wasted if I didn't focus on farmed animals. Mm. Um, so I did spend some time traveling, working on wildlife issues and wildlife trafficking issues. I rescued a monkey and worked with elephants. Um, <laughs> and it's, it was amazing. But once I returned to the country in 2014, I worked at Catskill Animal Sanctuary in upstate New York. I um, helped develop the curriculum for and run a camp, a summer camp called Camp Kindness, where kids came and got to learn about farmed animals and plant-based cooking and activism. And that's that's really what? The time. yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really the time that I knew, you know, as as exciting as rescuing a monkey is, it, it's not very effective. It's not, it's extremely time consuming. You can rescue one for, in my case, one monkey in two weeks and almost get arrested like four times. And, you know, and like you're saying the institutional change, yes, if you're after exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. But if you get one person to go vegan, you're saving hundreds of animals in a lifetime and mm-hmm. wildlife and water and carbon and workers and land and the oceans, you know, the impacts are just so massive. Wow. Yeah. So, so after Cass, you, I moved out to Colorado and that's when I met okay. Katie at a, at a conference and ended up working for AC for six years. Yeah. So you've been an activist basically since birth is what I'm hearing. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, <laughs> which I love. Also didn't know that you could carry a caterpillar around your neck. I'm not sure. I'm actually surprised I didn't find that as a child as well. <laughs> you know, now as a vegan activist and anti-speciesist, I recognize that it's probably problematic to keep a caterpillar in a cage every day, but I loved well-intentioned, yeah. <laughs> well-intentioned. Yeah. So you've been an activist since birth, but when did the switch to veganism happen? Like when did that connection happen? I was vegetarian on and off pretty much most of my life um, okay. and went vegan in college. Yeah. Okay. What was the final push? If you remember, I'm curious. I think just, yeah. Learning about the dairy industry. I don't really I don't really remember, honestly, what exactly that final push was. I think I just knew. That's okay. I don't really either. And I, when I see people on uh, social media that with like the date, yeah, I'm like, I don't know. It was like August, I think of a few years. I like, I I celebrate like a rough estimate. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's over a couple years now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever it is. Exactly. So, and what was the place you said you were working for now? So, um, I now work for the Institute for Human Education. Our uh, co-founder and president, Zoe Weil, is an incredible inspiration of mine. I've been following her work really throughout my entire career. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's been inducted into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame. She's written several books, including her most recent edition of The World Becomes What We Teach, which is Oof. just amazing. Oof. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oof. And she the title, a- <laughs> I was just, <laughs> yep, yeah, she is just amazing. And our goal is to help educators teach about human rights, environmental preservation, and animal protection to create a world where everyone can thrive. So animals are really a, an important part of the fabric of the solutionary framework, which mm-hmm. is the curriculum that we're trying to get schools across the country and the world to implement. And basically it teaches students to be critical thinkers and problem solvers. They're able to identify stakeholders that they need to connect with in order to make changes. And then they learn Mm. how to actually implement changes in their community. And it's really empowering to students. Um, We also developed the first and only degree in humane education, master's degree in humane education. Um, We have lots of graduates that work for farmed animal sanctuaries are doing vegan advocacy and outreach uh, all over the country. If you check out our website, you can see more about the graduate program and more about uh, the solutionary framework and Zoe's work as well. But it's an incredible organization and I'm extremely honored and grateful to, to work for them and learn from Zoe and Steve and the whole team. That's amazing. I'm excited to learn more and maybe we can 
you can connect me with some more folks yes, that should absolutely. be on the podcast. Definitely. Yeah. Cause that sounds amazing. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned was the rescue that you're, are you on the board of, correct? I'm on the board of Good Life Refuge, which is a relatively newer farmed animal sanctuary out here in Colorado in Longmont. So it's about 45 minutes from me in Denver. We just had our third birthday Uh, and I, yeah, I love it. You know, I had really missed working very closely with a sanctuary after leaving New York. You know, I worked Mm -hmm. at Cass for three summers in a row and that became a big part of who I am. And I've, I've always volunteered at sanctuaries out here, but it feels really good to be involved in the day-to-day decision-making and, um, to be able to use my skills to help this, this sanctuary grow to what it deserves to be. And our founder, Nicole is just incredible. She is so real and so authentic and she cares so deeply and she's so committed and passionate and the work that she's doing is just so amazing. Uh, my chicken is there. My, my, my sweet girl, sweet D, uh, she, oh. she lives that good life. I fostered her for the sanctuary over the summer. And so I love that I'm able to be involved in, in all of the back end stuff that, that makes her life as good as it is. And yeah, I've just, I've never really seen a sanctuary with such high quality of care and such a commitment to each individual animal, such individualized care for each animal. Um, and, you know, we're only three years in, but we already have 67 animals from, you know, oh, wow. species and we're hoping to develop a educational program that counters 4-H because 4-H is really big in the area. It's a big branching area. So we have big plans and it's exciting. Can you say a little bit about that? I've never heard anyone say countering 4-H in that way. So we want to, we don't really have the plans fully developed yet, but essentially our hope is to be able to provide a curriculum, kind of the way that 4-H provides a partner curriculum for schools. We want to be able to teach kids, you know, animal husbandry and nutrition and, Mm. um, teaches them about farmed animals, but from the lens of animal protection rather than raising them to kill them. Um, so that's our goal. Uh, and we have lots of cool tours. We have cooking classes, we have yoga, we have, we have lots of fun stuff going on there. So definitely check us out. Good life refuge. My chicken sweetie is actually going to be featured on the Dodo soon. So I'll definitely send you oh, of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fun. Oh my gosh. The Dodo gives me life. I Those know. Videos, I it just like mm-hmm. lifts everyone's spirits. If yeah. you don't follow that, this, this is not sponsored, but this is a plug for the yeah. Dodo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that sounds really amazing. I think it's, um, it's clear that your passion for this issue is like, you're where you're supposed to be. Like, I love talking to people where you can feel that they're where they're supposed to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And that feels like you, Yeah, that feels like you are where you're supposed to be. And that's so cool. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot. I have known where I wanted to be since I was two. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. feel extremely lucky to have always known exactly what I want. I think that a lot of people really struggle to find their purpose. And I have never had that struggle. I have always known it was animals. Mm. Um, and, you know, once learning about factory farming, it became more than animals. It became social justice, racial justice, environmental protection, workers' rights. Um, but it started at the core with animals. So you bring this up and I was of course creeping on your Instagram. I've (laughs) been following you, but you know, like before I interview someone, I'm like, what's been going on lately. So I was looking at your Instagram earlier today and something I really appreciated, um, was your, whether it was, um, let's see, what am I looking for? Whether it was intentional or like really forthright, or whether it was just a t-shirt you were wearing or a hat you were wearing, there's all these other subliminal messages around social justice Mm-hmm. that are woven into your message about veganism. And I'm guessing now after talking to you more, that's very intentional. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I think that that is something I've seen becoming, I don't somehow even more of a divide in the vegan it is, community. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. Um, and I really appreciated that you seem to bring those lenses 
or a try to, to the conversation? Is that, is that yeah. an intentional decision? I'm it's guessing very intentional and it's not so subliminal. I don't know how far you back you went on my, <laughs> um, I mean, I did see some that were like, very like, yeah. this is fucking racist. Yeah. This is da, 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 da. But even I just was like, oh yeah, she's just like wearing her hat or a mask that says slap your local racist, Yeah, yeah. you know? And like, maybe the post isn't about that, but you're still seeing that. I believe that racial and social justice should be a part of every action we take as animal advocates. Um, mm. I I think that racial and social justice or that veganism without the inclusion of racial and social justice is meaningless, honestly. Mm. Um, if we're not fighting for everyone and using our privilege, our human privilege, our white privilege to fight for everyone that's being oppressed, then it's a fraud. Honestly, I'm, I'm sick of white mm. vegans pretending that, you know, they're doing good for animals by only fighting for animals. It's, it's just excluding people. It's making us seem, it's making vegans seem yeah. I don't know. I, I don't even want to get into it. That yeah. Part, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just kind of like our, our movement, uh, we already struggle to get people on board here. Right. Y'all are not helping. Yeah. It's not heroic to not care about your fellow human. It's just gross, you know? Yes. That is the perfect way to say it. It is not heroic. You're not doing God's work yeah, by, yeah. out here. Also, by it's, being, it's, like, you know, it's leaving out other folks, like I was saying earlier, you know, we don't, we have this rare opportunity as a movement that most movements don't have where this, this industry touches everyone. So, you know, people of color are impacted by this industry far more than people like me. Yes. Yep. And it's important to acknowledge that, that they're victims of this as well. And it's not diluting the vegan message to also acknowledge that it's, making it stronger. It's making our messaging and our persuasion stronger to acknowledge reality instead of just focusing on the animals. You know, black people are having their homes sprayed on by hog waste. They're literally, you know, having their houses sprayed on by shit and they're getting literally pressure and their kids are being born with birth defects. You know, black and brown people live in food deserts predominantly, you know, which causes all different types of issues that relate back to animal ag. I mean, it's just, it's so intertwined and it's not doing the movement any favors to, to just be a single focused vegan. Well, I I appreciate your, um, ability to so, um, beautifully capture those kind of intersections and the ways that animal ag really does touch every other issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing, if you don't mind, I think would be interesting to hear your perspective on given that we're still in a freaking pandemic. Um, and I, uh, have been working in this tiny little home for years. Um, what is the connection there? Like, can we talk a little bit about that connection between, animal ag and pandemics. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I saw the other day, I saw this, um, you know, Facebook memory and the Facebook memories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Some of times that's fun. And other yeah. times you're like, Oh, bummer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but I saw this <laughs> Facebook memory of this meme that said, no one wants to talk about the cow in the room. Um, and it's had like little bubbles that said, you know, world hunger, diabetes, obesity, cancer, ocean acidification, ocean dead zones, uh, racial injustices, deforestation, species extinction, and pandemics. And, you know, we've been saying this for decades. They're, they just recently, I think last week had to call, I hate that word, kill a million birds, you know, a million chickens because there was a new strain of bird flu, right? This has been happening constantly almost all of the diseases, all of the pandemics that have happened in the past hundred years have come from our relationship with animals. And, you know, according to the UN, there are five major factors contributing to the spread of disease and every single one relates to, you know, animal agriculture impacts every single one of those five major causes, right? So we, we don't, 
it's like, again, we just, we don't have a choice. We can either choose water or a burger. We can have air or chicken nuggets. You know, we can have healthy children or we can continue to eat bacon and make jokes. Like we literally can have one or the other. There's no, there's no realm of possibility where we continue, continue doing what we're doing and live the life that we want to be living. Um, and that comes to pandemics too. It's disappointing right. that the, that that messaging isn't more a part of the fabric of the conversation around this pandemic. I think it's a big missed opportunity. And I think Have the you, reason it isn't is for the same reason that it's also not a part of the climate conversation unless we force it to be. It's not a part of the water conversation unless we force it to be, right? People just don't want to have to talk about giving up their precious burgers. Yeah. And have you seen much? I feel like you probably have a better pulse on like vegan activism in terms of what's going on in, in conversation than I do. Do you, have you seen much of that at all within that movement and talking oh, yeah. about this? Because I've seen some, maybe it's just not as a mainstream. A lot. A okay. lot. Yeah. I'm missing it. Yeah. No, <laughs> totally. The movement has really tried to capitalize on it as, as we should. Right. But you know, people don't want to bite. They, they want to blame China. They don't want to blame <sighs> what we're doing. You know, they speaking of racism. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's disheartening for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, have you you seen much of that conversation coming from outside of the vegan movement? Like from any, like, I'm wondering, like, has there been any, God, I don't know. I mean, the UN or the UN, you know, Cory Booker. Yeah. There are people there. Yeah, of course, but it's far and few between and we don't have the time to fuck around anymore. It's like, you know, literally, do you want water or do you want meat? Right. Um, to me, to be honest, I always have to make this plug. My, my main priority as an activist is chickens, mm. uh, chickens and fish. Um, but since I have such a personal relationship with chickens, that is really mostly at the forefront of my mind. Of course, all animals are important and all of these issues are important, but in terms of the numbers and in terms of the suffering that these animals endure, chickens are by far or should be by far our main priority. Um, you know, they make up 88% of the of the 10 billion animals killed for food in the U.S. every year. Shut up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 88%. But even though they make up 88% of the animals killed in the country, they have the least legal protection. So chickens and turkeys and fish, of course, are exempt from the Humane Slaughter Act. So technically it's not illegal to boil them alive. So there are literally 10 million chickens per, a U, the USDA stated that there are 10 million chickens boiled alive every day. Oh, for fuck's sake. And it's not technically illegal, right? Cause they're exempt from the Humane Slaughter Act and the lives of chickens, just everything about their lives from, from the suffering that's ingrained in their DNA from selective breeding, not being able to stand up and dying from turnover syndrome or flip over syndrome to the way they're created picked up by their feet and thrown into crates to the transport to the slaughter is as bad as it could possibly get. And I think a really, really, really big problem, especially from the environmental perspective is that people often say like, oh, just stop eating beef and eat more chicken. And it is probably my biggest pet peeve and probably the thing that disturbs and upsets me the most of anything I hear is just eat chicken instead. this idea that chicken is more sustainable, one, is just absurd. Um, two, there's nothing more dangerous for public health than chicken farming in terms of antibiotic use, in terms of uh, bird flu, in terms of pandemic spread. Uh, my, my old boss and mentor, Katie Cantrell, who works for BFF, wrote uh, an article which called chicken the natural gas of food. You know, we, we call it sustainable. We're, we're so obsessed with calling chicken sustainable and healthy when it's really the worst possible case scenario. And from a human rights perspective, you know, chicken, chicken slaughterhouse workers have it worse than I, I can't think of anyone who has it worse. It's a lot of women who end up being sexually harassed or worse. Um, there's amputations weekly in chicken slaughterhouses. They have to kill so many animals per minute that they often cut off their own fingers. Accidents happen constantly. 
Um, upper respiratory infections, they're often forced to wear diapers at work because they can't take bathroom breaks. And oh my of course, God. slaughterhouses in the US had some of the highest rates of COVID deaths as, as well, yes. right? So I, I really would be remiss to not constantly, everyone in my life knows I'm just like constantly talking about chickens. I just, chickens and turkeys, you know, turkeys too. It, they, they make up a smaller percentage of the animals killed, but the same thing, you know, the whole Humane Slaughter Act and the workers right. issues and the pandemic spread it's all the same with turkeys as well. Say that number again, 88% of 88% of the 10 billion animals killed in the U S are chickens. 10 billion killed in the U S billion with a B yeah. Billion. Yeah. How, what's the time? Like a year, a month, a, a year, day? a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So probably- I, did, I knew it was high, but yeah. 88% of that. I truly did not know. Mm-hmm. And take it from me, chickens and turkeys are some of the most emotional, sensitive, creative, curious, gentle, sometimes not so gentle, sassy creatures I've ever met. You know, I, I, I don't think I've ever had as deep of a connection with even my childhood dogs as I did with, with the chicken I was fostering this past summer or the turkeys that I worked with at Cass. Um, the emotional bond that was built between us was unlike anything I've experienced with any animal, including dogs. So it just is not true that chickens are less intelligent or less worthy of our love or protection than cows or pigs. And I made the mistake, you know, as a young activist, just to focus mostly on cows and pigs and college and stuff. But it, it really is chickens just from every perspective. I wish that chickens would be, and I think it's becoming more within the movement especially within, you know, effective altruism, chickens are chickens and fish are kind of becoming the main priority, but yeah, I want it to happen quickly, more quickly. And I want it to, to be the main conversation. Like, I, I think that we need to shift all of our movement building to chickens and fish. That is so interesting. I'm so glad you brought this up. Can you talk a little bit more about fish in terms of the, so like, why, why chicken and fish? Yeah. Trillions of fish are killed and they have even fewer protections and even less oversight in how they're killed and how they're treated. Um, farmed fish just live miserable, tortured lives. They're constantly on the brink of suffocation. You know, they're living in giant factory farms, basically just factory farms in the water where they're so much of their own waste that they're just constantly suffocating, not to mention the environmental impacts of all that runoff, the dead zones, the antibiotics, getting into all these other animals feed. And um, yeah, their, their existences are just horrific. And then their deaths, many of them are skinned alive. I mean, I don't know if you want to get into the nitty gritty right now, but, and then wild caught fish is causing huge amounts of bycatch, you know, it's just, yeah. Shrimp, especially shrimp. I, I would say shrimp and chicken probably are my, yeah, I, I keep, yeah. I mean, shrimp because of just the numbers, but also the environmental impacts and the social justice impacts of consuming shrimp. It's just hmm. hard to believe that something so horrific that affects everything so negatively could be so ignored. Yeah. Even by environmental groups. Um, even by social justice groups, yeah, you know, the shrimping industry is just about as bad, just about as bad as the chicken industry or the turkey industry. Um, and I think that's even, there's even more of a disconnect and I will totally admit mm -hmm. it myself when I first kind of started like taking out animal products from my diet, fish was the last thing to go Mm -hmm. one because of where I grew up, my family, yeah. it was, it was real. that part was hard. And two, I didn't make the connection to their, um, their yeah. ability to be emotional beings yeah. in the same way I could with other animals. And I think that's common. I think it's very common, um, with, with fish and birds, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we're very anthropomorphic mm-hmm. and we're very egotistical as a species <laughs> And yeah, yeah, we empathize, <laughs> we empathize with people that look like us, you know, totally look at white supremacy, right? It's kind of the same yeah. theory as 
the way that we view a chicken and a fish versus a cow and a pig. Cows and pigs mm-hmm. are more like us. They're mammals. Fish mm-hmm. look like these weird aliens. They can't scream. They can't make sounds. We can't understand what, what they're doing. And birds are little dinosaurs, right? We just, we can't find ourselves in them. Mm. And that makes us think because we're so egotistical, we think that we're the ones that feel the most, that we experience the most out of life. Um, that, that drives us to believe that they don't feel as much pain or they're not as intelligent. And it's just not true. You know, fish are mm-hmm. incredible. They can pass information generationally. They play with pebbles. They throw pebbles back and forth. I saw it myself just to play games. Um, they make long-term, long-lasting friendships. Same with chickens. Chickens are so amazing. There's this great book called, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? <laughs> and I just don't Ooh. think we are, you know, um, chickens can see so many more colors than we can. They're incredibly brave. There's, there's so many facts I could go on about, but, um, I would like to mention shrimp. Um, yes, please. So in terms of harm reduction, cutting shrimp and birds, particularly from your diet is probably a great way to start and a great way to have the highest impact in terms of numbers. So one, because shrimp are so small, there's so many more of them. There's also something that occurs on shrimp farms called eye stock ablation. Shrimp get really, really stressed in confinement. And so they won't breed and the females won't produce as many eggs. And so their eyes are cut off to get them to not be able to see what's happening around them, to get them to, to produce more offspring. On top of that, um, yeah, on top of that, shrimp farms are the leading cause of mangrove destruction in South Africa. Yeah. Mangroves are incredibly vital ecosystems. They're amazing trees that grow on coastal in coastal waters, and they're hugely important in terms of protecting, you know, or preventing erosion. They're also really important nurseries for baby sharks and other sea animals. And they absorb more CO2 than rainforests. So they're one of our single most important tools to fight against climate change. And they're being completely decimated to make space for shrimp farms. Uh, And then of course, with wild caught shrimp, the shrimp has the highest rates of bycatch because they're they're caught with bottom trawling trawlers, they're bottom feeders. So they're at the bottom of the ocean. So they're so dragging all that exactly, shit. Exactly. Yeah. When you're using a super trawler, not only are you catching lots of other animals, but you're also dragging it along the bottom of the ocean floor, which has more animals to catch. And it destroys all of that coral and all those ecosystems. And then of course there are the child slaves who are forced to deep, uh, de-shell shrimp for up to 16 hours a day. There's people that are enslaved on, fishing boats in Southeast Asia for decades um, and killed if they try to escape. They're literally chained to the decks of boats. So there's a lot of a lot of cruelty in these things that we often see as less bad or that are often advertised to us as less bad, such as chicken, you know. I think one of the crazy things whenever I have like conversations like these, you know, like all the stuff you just said, what, at what point are we as a society, I'm just curious, like what generation is going to be like, holy shit, you guys did what? Yeah. You know, like when you list what, what you just listed for shrimp, yeah, like for fucking shrimp. Yeah. Like, you know, literally eating cockroaches. It eating cockroaches. I just saw that on Instagram the other day. They're very, very smart, but you know, that's not insulting them, but like it's the cockroach of the sea. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say they're not smart and resilient and emotional and feeling, but in terms of like consumption, it's kind of gross, you know? (laughs) Right. And people would see a cockroach and smash it on the wall and shrimp. They're like, "Mm, delicacy. (laughs) Like it's all that cognitive dissonance Yep. that learning that what that was helped me. Actually, I think it just helped me have conversations with other people better. Yeah. Realizing like, oh, that's what's happening here. All of us have done it or do it. Yeah. That ability to be like, this is different than this. Yeah. Is we are, I mean, we can trick ourselves into believing whatever the hell we want. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It's crazy. So given 
all of the stuff you just shared and knowing that that is so important to be a part of the movement and important to know that information, but also knowing that it's heavy. Yeah. It's heavy and it's hard to hear sometimes and it's hard to do that work. What do you do to take care of yourself? I go to a lot of live music. Mm. So I go to a lot of concerts, a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time with friends. I really make a big conscious effort to separate work and life. So, you know, most of my friends don't work in the movement and I spend a lot of time with, with my friends. Um, I watch a lot of always sunny in Philadelphia (laughs) and a lot of curb your enthusiasm. Um, I spend a lot of time with animals at sanctuaries at good life refuge, which really grounds me and reminds me of the good side of this work. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like you have those strategies in place because sometimes you ask someone, how do you take care of yourself? And they're like, shit, good question. (laughs) I struggle, man. I mean, I really struggle, you know, Thanksgiving is such a hard time for me. And yeah, um, this year was better because I wasn't giving presentations, but I usually just have panic attacks and night terrors every day leading up to Thanksgiving for like a month. Um, and it's just unavoidable. It's just part of my cycle yearly cycle. Um, yeah, I mean, I still really struggle and I still have flashbacks and I'm actually, I'm doing this thing called neurofeedback right now. Uh, to try to help me with the, the flashbacks, the, the PTSD part of my brain was like bright yellow and yep. it's not from personal experiences. It's literally just from what I've seen with animals. I, yeah. it's more under control now than it used to be a few years ago, but I still have pretty constant flashes, uncontrollable flashes where I'll have a moment of silence or I'll like close my eyes for a second and I'll start seeing chickens strung upside down by their legs, having their throat slit. Or, you know, if I see something innocent, like I see a cute octopus on a TV show, I immediately start seeing octopus slaughter. It's, it sucks. (laughs) Um, so, you know, that's not to say that I have it all down pat, but I'm working on it and I hope your feedback is going to be as helpful as it sounds like it will be. Oh, I, um, commend you for doing that and trying to take care of that because it's sometimes can be scarier, mm-hmm. especially when you start to do yeah. that work, that like neuro work, that EMDR, that kind yeah, of realm absolutely. can be yeah. uh, scary at the, at the onset. So I commend you for doing that because yeah, you deserve to take care of yourself as much as you're trying to solve everyone, everyone else's problems. Right. <laughs> also, I'm saying this as someone who needs to hear the shit that just came out of my mouth. So right, don't, exactly. don't think I'm saying this as like someone who's figured it out. <laughs> we all do. We all, all activists do in any, movement. yeah, I think this movement, especially just because it's so urgent and the numbers are so goddamn big and yeah. the impacts are so far reaching and the urgency is so ever present, um, that it feels almost, you know, I think a lot of us feel guilty often when we take a break. And I think that it's important to rid ourselves of that. Yeah. And give ourselves the time to heal from the things we're seeing that we need. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. So is there anything that you want to share or you want to make sure that you tell listeners that I didn't give you space to? Um, I think I said it all. I said a lot. I talked a lot with my, that's the point you're on a podcast. (laughs) You're being interviewed. That's great. Um, yeah, just please check out IE Institute for human education and Zoe Wiles books and Ted talks. It's incredibly inspiring to, to, you know, talking about hope and the need for self-care. There's no one more hope inspiring than, than Zoe, I'd say. Uh, and please do check out good life refuge. Come visit us. If you're ever in Colorado, come volunteer. If you live here, um, donate if you can. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I really appreciate you. This was awesome. It was great meeting you finally. And, uh, I appreciate your time and having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of consciously clueless. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe wherever you're listening. If that's somewhere like Apple podcasts, leave a review and you could be read on air as the review of the week. 
Looking for more podcast content, yoga videos, meditations, and all-around amazing community? Head over to patreon.com slash consciouslycarly and check out what's going on. And finally, if you are ready to make changes in your life but don't really know where to begin, let's work together. Head over to consciouslycarly.com and we can start the process and get you happy. Until next time. Thank you.